All right. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. I'm with a special guest today. We've got Jordana Adler on the show. Um, Jordana is the lead neurofeedback technician at Santa Cruz Neurofeedback. She has graduated from the Pacifica Graduate Institute with a master's degree in depth psychology, emphasizing in somatics. She's also a certified professional coach, yoga instructor, and leads the center's two weekly restorative yoga classes. She spends most of her time continuing her studies of neuroscience, which is her personal passion, along with, I just found out, snowboarding. So, <laughs> Jordana, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I wanted to just get started with kind of asking you, you know, what originally got you, what, what piqued your interest in neurofeedback? You know, how did you hear about it and what, what drew you to it? Yeah, it's an interesting, uh, I took a funny route. Um, I was just walking down, uh, it's called Soquel. Um, it's like in Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz has all these little pockets. I was walking down downtown one day and there was this place called the Center for Transformational Neurophysiology. And I was like, I don't know what that is, but that sounds cool. <laughs> that sounds like something I'm interested in. So I remember trying to like knock on the door and it was locked and I was just like, okay. So I, I found them online and then I think I emailed the director and was like, hey, you know, I don't really know what y'all do, but I think I'm really, I really want to be involved somehow. So um, long story short, um, they let me volunteer here um, for about what, a month, two months, something like that. I think I got a brain map done and then let me volunteer to pay it off. Um, and then they hired me. And I was like, you know, I've just finished grad school. And I was like, yeah, you know, sure, why not? And it just seemed like um, more I studied uh, the actual concept, like the actual field of neurofeedback, um, there were a lot of parallels to theories I had like kind of come up with and guessed about um, that was going on in the brain during particularly things like flow. Um, I did one of my field work studies in grad school on flow. So um, there was this SMR rhythm they call on neurofeedback, you know, sensory motor rhythm. And I was like, I guess that flow is very linked to high alpha, low beta. And I was kind of like, hey, there's this thing in neurofeedback. I was just like, you know, it all just kind of clicked together. So um, and then, of course, I was like, you know, what am I going to do daily for a job? And I was like, I definitely want to be around brains. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how I got involved in it. Very cool. Very cool. So kind of... Uh learning all the stuff from, from grad school, but then actually finding a way that it's actually being applied, right? As far yeah. as the, the neuroscience end. And I was kind of amazed that I hadn't heard of neurofeedback until then. Like I, I'm still kind of amazed that someone who studied psychology, got a BA in psychology, and I also, you know, just studied psychology, studied neuroscience, was, went to grad school for these types of things. No one ever mentioned neurofeedback. So I'm still kind of amazed at that. Um, Right. I, I mean, I have some theories as far as why, you know, that may be the case as far as why there isn't a greater kind of public recognition of it. But I mean, I'd be curious to hear your take because it's something that, I mean, I, I kind of found the same thing with school. I mean, I learned, you know, EEG in my research lab. But other than that, it's like all of this stuff I, I found out about outside of school. And, you know, it seems like something that you know, where you can actually apply it to real, you know, all of this science to real people and benefit real people, it seems like this should be, you know, at the forefront of what they're teaching. My guess, to be honest with you, is I think it's just too new. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think it's just, we're, we're just like, if it was, it was 10 years down the road, you know, when I was 10 years younger and I was, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think, I, I just think it's just too new. 
Um, and it just takes a long time for people to find out about things. It takes a long time for really science to have the validation type stuff, especially in a clinical setting. And then also, you know, why does neurofeedback for a certain percentage of the population doesn't seem to help as much as for others? Um, and there's just seems that some people just, it's not that they're resistant to it, but it just, some people, it seems like super effective right away. And then some people, it seems like it's just, there's, it just takes forever. Um, right. So I think that, you know, when you talk about medications and you talk about that type of, you know, normality that we have, particularly in our culture, like we want to pay for something, we want to see instant results. That's what we want. That's what we're expecting. And I think neurofeedback, you know, it, it depends on where your consciousness is. It depends on where your attention is. There's all these other things that kind of depend. Um, I guess ILF is a little different, but um, yeah, so that's, that's a whole other discussion. But I, th I think in general, I think it's just it's not something that everyone could come to and you could pay a certain amount. I mean, you know, again, even with the double blind studies, you know, it's hard to do that with neurofeedback. So right. I just think that's, that's probably what's hindered its, its expansion. But I mean, I've been here about four years. We've had this center about 14 years this year. And I would say the last two years, we've really like exponentially grown. So, and a lot of people are referencing Body Keeps the Score, a huge one. And therapists are referencing them to us. And I think, I think that's what's, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just taking a long time. But I think that's the, like, that's the concept. It's just, it's taking a while for people to kind of get it out there. People write about it. People learn about it. Then they validate it. You know, it's just, it just takes a while. But I, I do think it's kind of hit a little, it seems at least where I'm at, it just kind of hit a little bit of a turning point. It seems like right. a lot more people are coming. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I wonder, I mean, it, it seems kind of like with uh, the increased popularity of like yoga and meditation and, and those kind of, you know, more Eastern practices where that's becoming more and more popular, it seems like, uh, you know, people are recognizing, you know, the, the prescription drug, you know, over, I guess, over prescribing them or just the opioid epidemic and all that stuff. And people are looking for more natural means to both, you know, kind of correct uh, brain problems along with, I think there's, you know, the new interest in, in peak performance, not, mm -hmm. not just how can I fix my brain, but how can I actually get the most out of, out of my brain. Right. And I, my experience, particularly in this field is I feel like it's such a, like, that's why I always say there's such potential in this field because there's so many different avenues um, and so many different reasons someone could come to neurofeedback. Um, I think most people come to us, more for the therapeutic reasoning. Um, I would, I'd love to see more peak performers, but it's expensive and it's expensive to spend that much for a peak performance. It's different, you know, um, if you're spending it because you're trying to feel better. Right, sure. But that's part of it. But yeah, yeah, there's a very wide range of, of uses for this technology. Right. And so just to back up a little bit, I mean, if you're a longtime listener of the show, definitely heard me talk about neurofeedback before, but for people who are just listening, you know, neurofeedback is basically where you're, you're training the electrical rhythms of your brain. Um, and I want to, I wanted to ask, you know, as far as, uh, you know, what, what's your take as far as does neurofeedback work, you know, more on a conscious level Are people kind of consciously making these, these changes or, does it have more to do with, with subconscious or uh, unconscious kind of reprogramming? What's, you know, cause I know you studied, you studied depth psychology, mm -hmm. which from my brief uh, understanding of, you know, you're kind of exploring those different realms. So I'm, I'm curious with your educational path, 
along with your experience with neurofeedback, what, what's your take on how it is working? Yeah, good question. Um, I mean, the long and short answer is both. <laughs> um, but, um, okay, so my experience is I think people, working with people day in and day out, I think that there's almost like two camps of people. You have like people that kind of are really have the metacognitive piece and they're aware of kind of their own thoughts. They're aware of this, they're aware of this whole consciousness thing that's happening. Um, and they can kind of play around with different thoughts and they can see how the bars change in response to their, th they, they can, they have that whole awareness piece. And I think that neurofeedback offers those types of people a whole cool um, way to help them direct their attention and recognize different, uh, different things that I place my attention on actually change my brainwave frequencies in real time. I think that is massively valuable. Even just that, that piece itself is hugely valuable. Um, but then there's a whole nother camp of people, um, adults and children, particularly children are interesting because obviously they're not aware of these certain things, right? They're not going to have metacognition really at that age. So, um, they, what's amazing is they can just watch the screen get brighter and know they want to make it brighter and that's it. And that's all they need. And it's like massively effective. So that's obviously unconscious, right? Um, so, I mean, at least from what I can understand, what my boss says and what I've seen with people and what I've read is, you know, what I always tell people at the very least, just it's operant conditioning. At the very least, you want to, you know, make the screen get brighter. You want to, you just want to, I often describe it like Marco Polo. Like, it's almost like your consciousness is just doing its thing and someone's like, Polo, Polo, over here, over here. It's like, I don't know what I did, but that's, I mean, the brain loves patterns, right? That's what it likes to do. It likes to find patterns in the environment and guess the future. So we're kind of just giving it, giving it that fuel for it to figure those things out. Um, and again, I mean, I could go into more depth about standard neurofeedback versus the um, network neurofeedback that we do here too. I think that's also um, a little different, but because I think the standard neurofeedback, I think it's easier to have the cognitive piece. I think with the network neurofeedback, like NeuroGuide, um, like Loretta Neuroguide, I think it's a little, it's almost, I wouldn't expect anyone to really have that awareness. But again, you know, more peak performers, people that are already kind of have that, that metacognitive piece. Um, and because that's how I experience neurofeedback. Like I'm very aware of my thoughts. I'm very aware of different spaces in the environment that I'm paying attention to and how that's affecting, affecting my, um, my neurofeedback. So, mm -hmm. but I don't, I don't always really know how to teach that to people. Right. Um, so that's, um, it's always it's always a um, problem solving thing when someone comes in and they're like, "What am I doing? What do I do?" and and it's always each person is so individual. Um, so I kind of give them all the pieces, but I notice some people it's overwhelming to give them the cognitive piece. So I just kind of give them the the subconscious because I think it's going to work on both. If you have the cognitive piece, you're going to have the subconscious piece. If you don't have the the awareness piece of it. I still think it's going to work on the subconscious level. So does that answer that question? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that just came into my mind is, as you were talking, you know, as far as kids being able to kind of, you know, experience really good results with neurofeedback yeah. without having the that kind of conscious component, I I almost wonder, I mean, I was just thinking as far as, you know, maybe certain adults who who aren't benefiting from neurofeedback, whether there's almost the conscious component that interferes. You know, mm -hmm. you know, yes. as far as a lot of like self-sabotage and, and people, you know, sort of um, wanting one thing, but their subconscious or unconscious belief system kind of 
getting in the way of of what they're trying to consciously achieve. I just wonder if that's at all related, you know, to to people's progress and neurofeedback. Yeah. Yes, I think what comes up for me and what I notice with people sometimes is they want it, like I said, like that medication. They want these really massive shifts. And neurofeedback is very subtle and it's going to be subtle things over time. I mean, more often than not, we get people's spouses that say something, oh, I'm noticing all these changes. And the person's like, I don't notice anything. Or they'll come in, I'm like, oh, has anything changed? Nope, nothing. Everything's the same. And then, like a minute later, like, well, I am less reactive and I guess I am sleeping better. Like, if I ask them these other questions, they're getting better, but they're so used to this, like maybe such a quick shift that they're not, they're not so great at tracking over time, which is what I feel like part of my job is just to track over time and then be like, well, look at this, like a month ago, this is where you were. And now this is where you are, you know? And so it, um, I feel like that's part of that piece. Mm -hmm. Um, and then of course you have the whole discussion about like, the recreation of the self kind of thing, even in psychology, you know, when you go through like psychological developments, like there's kind of this like um, pieces about the sense of self, right? If I've defined my sense of self in a certain way and now I'm kind of healing from that, you have to kind of recreate your sense of self and sense of identity. And there, there's that whole resistance piece to parts of that. And there could be a grieving piece. There could be, there's all these emotional pieces that I feel like one has to digest and move through usually to really feel quote unquote healed. Or, mm -hmm. I mean, that's yeah, really right. So. Yeah, that brings up, that brings up a good point. I remember, you know, when we were talking last week, as far as, you know, if you say change someone's, you know, electrical rhythms of their brain and, and, you know, you, you know, kind of correct those abnormalities, but if you're not still addressing kind of the, the traditional psychological component, um, you know, maybe some people having issues sort of processing the changes that are occurring. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious, you know, just from your experience, what are what are common things that that pop up, you know, when people are kind of moving through neurofeedback, like mm -hmm. obstacles or um, memories or what, what kind of stuff? That's a good question. Um, more often than not, particularly people that come with anxiety, depression, balance going on. Um, a lot of anger will start coming up. Um, a lot of emotions will start coming up. So people will start crying a lot or they'll, I've had people that are like, will start having something that normally took them like a whole week to move through. They just had depression for a whole week. Now they're having this whole experience in like 20 minutes. Like they're feeling like, you know, like anxious and then depressed and then angry. And then they get sad and they cry and then they feel like, Oh, now I'm done. Like that was, a whole little cycle. Um, my understanding, you know, I, a lot of ideas around that, but I think a lot of that is just processing. You know, it's whether it's specific memories or not, I think it's grief over certain things. I think it's just digestion of emotions. Um, I think it's just people, there's things that they're resisting. And when they come to us, I feel like it's, it's helping them move through that, that digest. I always use that, this digestion, um, metaphor for the psychological digestion. And I feel like that we're helping people kind of through that process. Very often I see that. Does that answer the question? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's a good metaphor. I hadn't heard that before, but it actually kind of makes sense as far as if food needs time to move through your body, it, it would make sense yeah. that your brain is going to take time to kind of deal with, you know, moving through some of that stuff. 
I feel uh, like one of my, I love when people start crying and I love to be able to support them in the, the normality of that. Cause to me, that's the movement, you know, it's, it's, if you've ever been through deep grief before, if you, you would understand, you, you get this, you get the fact that it takes a long time and each it's like different levels and you just have to like, let the energy and the, and the emotion, we'll say the emotion, you have to let it move through you. Um, and, I, and to be, and you, you'd mentioned the, um, the yoga piece. I feel like that's kind of what, in a lot of ways, there's a lot of things I think the restorative yoga offers. Um, but for me, my experience and my journey, I feel like yoga has really offered me kind of this ability to kind of experience emotions in a more metacognitive way and to kind of just let them move through me instead of why am I feeling this way? And then it's like, I go through this whole thing or if I'm crying of, oh, you know, I'm upset. No, it's just, okay. I'm just, whether, whatever it's from, I'm just letting it move through me. And then it kind of, it passes rather than this like resistance piece and this, oh, I can't, I can't go there. You know, it's like, I do my best to try to just let it flow through. Right. Right. I've heard it sort of described um, as, as sort of like, you know, whether you identify, you know, like your problems and everything, if, if, if you're in the midst of it versus if you're kind of at a distance, you know, kind of playing the observer. Um, yeah. Is that, is that kind of what, what you're talking about there, kind of being able to take a step back and, and sort of get a, uh, an overview of, you know, what you're feeling instead of just reacting? Yeah. Yeah. In yoga, we, we, I often, you often kind of say it's not, you're going beyond the good and bad. It's not, oh, this is a good feeling. Oh, this is a bad feeling. It's, oh, this is a sensation. And you're objectifying it in that way so that it's more, you have more of that metacognitive awareness and you're like, oh, it's a sensation. How do I make the sensation maybe not as intense? It just, it gets rid of the, the psychological, like dual connotations to things. Because, and this is a depth psychological kind of piece to that, that I feel like I can, I can say, but it's kind of like when you put light on something, you say something's good, inherently, like when you put light on something, a shadow's created, right? So it's very similar in, psych, in, in the psyche. It's like when you, when you say something, this is good, that inherently means something else is now bad, right? Or the opposite. So instead of creating that dualism, you're trying not to create that and just saying, oh, this is a sensation and, and seeing things as they are rather than um, through that colored lens of, <laughs> that's funny, colored lens of black and white, hmm. uh, a dual lens of black. And actually, because the colored lens would actually be more accurate in terms of it could be, it's just a sensation and one could look at it good, bad, rough, um, tight, um, I don't know, stressful, whatever. I'm just making things up, but it could technically be all of those, right? So playing around with consciousness in that way and playing around with your attention. And what's amazing in yoga, one of the reasons I love it, is you can start playing with your attention and then you start almost trying on different ways of seeing or different ways of feeling a sensation. And in yoga, it's so noticeable when one, like one of them, like you try on one and you can like balance and you try on another one and you can't. You know, you're doing the same thing. So, um, yeah. yeah. Interesting. So I, I, I wonder, you know, we're talking about um, sort of this uh, greater sense of awareness or, or just metacognition, you know, we're talking about with neurofeedback. I'm curious, you know, from a, from a neuroscience perspective, do we know, you know, what is going on chemically and electrically in the brain when, when people are getting this, when, when either they're cultivating this, this sort of uh, metacognition uh, with, yoga or neurofeedback or 
some other sort of practice? Uh, theoretically, I'm sure there's something out there that gives, um, you know, guesses, educated guesses about what they think is happening, I'm sure. Um, and I'm pretty sure I've read a couple of those things in grad school about like, I think I've read a multiple things about how it supports your immune system and things like that. Um, I'll say just what I can actually speak about um, accurately is I know in grad school, again, with that flow thing I was telling you about, one of the things that I got really into was this embodiment concept, which is basically just taking your attention and putting it on your body, essentially. Um, and I felt like doing all these different body practice, embodiment practices, it almost, to me, it was like I'm myelinating those connections eventually up to my consciousness, right? Like the more, the more attention I place on different parts of my body, eventually I'm going to start feeling it. I'm going to start feeling it. And that's, I mean, if you ever have those things, you know, um, some issues or something like that, it's physical therapy, right? To get feeling back in your hands, to get that movement back, that neuroplasticity, that remyelinating, or maybe just myelinating in general those connections so my my theory i put in my my grad paper what was that like i don't know how long ago that was that was 20 2016 so four years ago uh maybe it was the year before 2015 either way 2015 um the idea was that i feel like my theory was that the more attention you place on the body the more malleated those connections become and eventually it becomes conscious awareness um, and so then like with yoga things, then you're actually more aware of these feelings and these sensations inside of your body. Um, and then that's of course a whole journey. Um, and there's, again, I could talk about the shadow side of that too, if I really wanted to, but, right. um, now that I'm feeling, cause most people are disconnected from their bodies, right? Cause it was uncomfortable at some point and then you shut off from it. Um, but yeah. there is a, yeah. No, sorry. Sorry to cut you off there. No, no, go ahead. No, I, I just wanted to kind of jump into that, you know, you, you brought up as far as people being kind of uh, disconnected from their, their bodies. I'm curious, I wanted to ask you as far as like how, you know, you think with yoga, um, how that kind of, you know, bodily awareness, how does, you know, we talk about physical ailments, you know, and mental health ailments, like there seems to be definitely, you know, a relation. Does yoga sort of, kind of help you identify those or I'm just curious that what's the connection yeah. there um so I'm going to speak for myself here in my own journey because this is different than restorative yoga like what, what I what I as a teacher in restorative yoga am intending to do is different than what I'm experienced necessarily in my own yoga practice um so my this, for the question that you asked I feel like when I do yoga my I'm like as metacognitive as I possibly can be. And then I'm just noticing different postures, different memories that are arising, different like things that are theoretically stored inside of my body. Um, and noticing like, why does, oh, this kind of hurts right here. Okay, is there any like mental imagery that's coming up? You know, it's just kind of like playing with all those different things. Um, you know, I could have theories about maybe, you know, maybe yeah, people say things are stored in different body parts and all of that. Um, and that's my experience in a lot of ways, you know, um, especially when there's pain in certain like, you know, parts of my body, like my knee is hurting. Okay. It's the right knee is this side. Like, and I just kind of start feeling into it and seeing if any memories come up or anything. Um, to me that helps with my self healing, but I can't say that's going to work for everyone, you know? So I don't, I don't necessarily know that's something that everyone would experience or is valuable for everybody. But I know for me and my journey, it's been really helpful 
it's a it's a massively psychological thing for me yoga is it's very physical obviously but it's it's more it's more psychological than physical for me mm-hmm. right I, i've personally noticed just going to certain you know yoga classes like there'll be some teachers um i don't know who will lead it in a way that it seems like there's more more kind of attention paid to you know either the stretching you know just more of the physical component versus you know more really following the breath and and really being aware of all these like emotions and thoughts that come up i'll I'll notice myself i don't know if you ever have this but like i'll I'll feel much different like after a class like depending on kind of how it's the style in which it's led yes very and the latter is my favorite yeah yeah exactly yes and even like in in my classes that i teach i i like to um, often, especially if people are leaning forward or doing forward fold type stuff, I have them breathe into the back of their body. So their inhale is in the back and then they exhale out through the front. So you're kind of like, if that makes sense, like you're kind of directing your attention and trying to direct your breath in a certain way. And if you do that, especially if you're leaning forward, and you breathe into your back, you'll notice that you can really feel your back kind of like, you can feel it. You can feel it. It feels different. We'll just say that. It feels different. And then after they've done that for gosh knows how long, 15 minutes altogether, maybe 20 minutes altogether, different poses, then we go onto our backs and now you're inhaling through the front and exhaling through the back. And now you're, you know, your, your back is on the ground instead of your front, you know, and just feeling those differences and noticing mentally how different that feels. You know, I mean, people, it seems in some ways simple, but, um, you know, your posture, your, the that type of stuff is going to affect your psyche it's going to influence it let's put it that way i'm not going to say it's going to control it or anything but it's going to affect it it's going to have some influence and i think that type of connection i guess to me is just really fascinating um and i feel like that's in some ways a self-healing right we're letting the body kind of have its own digestion process and have its own self-healing process and i say that self-healing in terms of like realignment and just feeling, you know, just feeling good <laughs> essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. So yeah, I guess there's, you know, I guess there's different ways you could sort of explain the the benefits, you know, one might experience through yoga. You know, I've, I've seen, I think uh, a couple studies like with, I believe it was like increased uh, levels of GABA, you know, that they found, after a yoga session and decreased levels of cortisol. Curious, like, do you know, are there any other studies that, that you've seen or, or do you, do you get into this I, stuff at all as far or do you, are you more so just. Not anymore. That's sure. what I'm saying. Like I could go back to my grad school like stuff and I'm sure I'm there again. There's that one article I'm thinking of that I remember reading about um, different meditations. I think it was Tong Len and maybe a couple other meditations, loving kindness meditation linked to like immune system support and stuff like that. But I, I'll be honest with you, I can't, I can't even think of anything right now because I'm sure. at a place really, I feel like that I don't need, I don't really need all, not need. I just, it doesn't, I feel like I've read so many things and I, I'm just so, I guess, convinced, <laughs> I guess that it's so supportive to just take time to focus on your breath, like take all of your attention, focus it inside. And just, it's so nourishing to do that. Um, that I guess for some reason it doesn't, I don't feel like I, I guess it's not that I don't care about that other piece. Um, Cause I'm sure I think it's valuable to know it, but it's just, my experience is so validating that I don't, 
<laughs> that lack of a better phrase, I don't care. <laughs> right. Okay. Now, um, that that brings up a really like I don't know, I forgot where I had seen this, but I was like reading an article like, you know, as far as talking about, you know, when when you're coming at something from a strictly like scientific perspective, you know, we could say, you know, socializing will increase, uh, you know, serotonin and oxytocin and decrease whatever, you know, you could explain it as far as all that, but people don't go out at night because they have in their minds, oh, I want to go increase my levels of serotonin. They're like, right. I want to go have a, a good time. And then in turn, those chemical changes take place, but it's, it's not like you need to like know that part in order for that to happen. And then I'm thinking that changed my perspective on things a little bit. Right. And then the question is why, how would that be helpful to know that? Like if, if you did know that, and in some ways I could see myself feeling like, okay, oxytocin, like I could see why, okay, that's where that feeling's coming from. Okay. Got it. That's just that. And, and then I guess in some ways it's objectifying it because then it's in a in, in could be a good way where it's like, okay, that's why I feel good in this scenario. How can else can I get oxytocin? I, I could see that being valuable. Um, but I, I don't in, in the, in the yoga, in the yoga perspective, I don't find it important. Um, I'm kind of more uh, on the camp of if it's something you feel like you want to do great, but I still feel like everyone's going to find their own thing. You know, yoga is just one Avenue. Um, I just happened to, you know, stumble upon it years ago. And for me, I mean, talk about snowboarding, you mentioned slightly, I mean, snowboarding was like, my first introduction to flow, I think it was just, I loved it, loved it, loved it. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing here, but it is like, and it really ended up being, I think, embodiment and directing my attention. It was amazing to me how based on where I directed my attention is where the board goes and how well I can actually snowboard down something really depended on where, where my attention was and how focused I was um, to a T. I mean, to the point where you'd fall instantaneously, like, I used to have a Bluetooth headset in my, in my helmet and like somebody would call me and I'd answer and I would fall every single time instantaneously as soon as I said hi. Um, and I, like that type of connection fascinated me. Um, and I think yoga, like I said, is a great way to play with that too. Um, but it doesn't, and now I found yoga because I couldn't snowboard anymore. My story, life, my life story took me somewhere else and then I couldn't snowboard, but yoga was giving me something similar. And I was like, I don't know what it's doing, but it's, it's helping me get up in the morning. And I, I always feel better when I'm done. And it's similar to the feeling I get when I snowboard. So I want to do that. <laughs> right. You know, being a, being a snowboarder myself, I feel like that's, look at me. I mean, that's probably, that was probably my first introduction to flow is, you know, either mountain biking or snowboarding where you're just mm -hmm. flying down a mountain and, you know, you don't have time to think about what am I going to have for lunch or what do I need to do for work? I, I had read about, um, I'm sure you may be familiar with the, uh, the rise of Superman, the, the book mm -hmm. on flow yeah. by yeah, Stephen Kotler, yeah. um, where he, he's basically talking or he's, he's basically, you know, studying these extreme sports athletes um, and looking at how, you know, basically they're, they're pretty much forced to get into flow, like these flow states yeah. because they could die. I mean, if they momentarily have this lapse of, you know, consciousness, if they're surfing on a big wave or something that, I mean, they could literally die. So it, it sort of just takes you right there. That uh, was sort of my understanding of it. Yeah. Yes. 
and imagine if if you could just harness that and use it whenever you want to you know what i'm saying like no right. i don't have i don't have i'm not about to die but i could still harness that same mental space and to me that's the, in some ways peak performance i mean how are you all of these things are all about playing around with attention in my opinion it's all about direction of attention I feel like I, it's like, if I could have like one slogan, it'd be like direction of attention. Like that to me is the key. Um, and it's, yeah. And that's why, yeah, again, why I love yoga. Cause it shows me instantaneously. It gives me instant feedback when I'm not directing my attention where I need to. If I'm doing a balancing pose, I fall right away and that's fine. You know, in yoga, you really try not to judge yourself, you know? Mm -hmm. Okay, fine. That was silly. All right. Well, I'll try again next time. That's fine. Um, but it is, it's instant feedback. And to me, neurofeedback is too, right? It's instant feedback and you need that in flow. If you, Stephen Kotler's whole flow fundamentals, if you ever go down that path, you need instant feedback. That's why snowboarding, that's why a lot of these mountain biking is so flow orienting because you also get the instant feedback. There's a lot of things to it. There's like a whole list, um, autotelic, things like that. Um, but yeah. So I'm curious, you know, maybe being introduced to flow, you know, with like snowboarding or yoga, do you find yourself able to sort of get, you know, get into that sort of state, you know, if you need to say, get a big project done at work or, you know, if you want to, you know, get yourself into that flow state, do you feel like those experiences kind of have trained your attention in order to do that? Yes. Not a hundred percent of the time, you know, not every day am I going to be able some days are just not as good as others. Um, but I would say about 90% of the time. Yeah. I feel like I have really good, um, influence, I hate that word control, but in some ways a little bit of that, I feel like I really can get into that state. Yes. I know what it is for me. Um, particularly when I do yoga, the hardest part is my day to day now is that I, I often get interrupted with, you know, other people asking me questions. Um, but even then, you know, it's like, I feel like I can still kind of stay there and I can get back there much quicker and much easier um probably than maybe some others who aren't super aware of what's happening in their attention or within their consciousness yeah right that's definitely a super super valuable skill to have mm -hmm. yeah, yeah especially when you got a lot of stuff done <laughs> yeah absolutely so i want to switch gears a little bit you know one of the things uh we talked about you know, before that I thought was really interesting as far as, you know, with the DSM and, and sort of putting these labels on people, you know, with, with the mental mm -hmm. health um, sort of stuff, if, if we're putting someone into a box, you have this disorder requires this treatment, you know, whereas, you know, I think the way both of us uh, sort of think about it is more of, you know, la uh, more of kind of just the way someone's brain is functioning um and less of like a diagnostic i don't know if if there's a better way to phrase that but you know what you mean yeah you know yeah it's it's i think i think psycho it's psycho dsm is the psycho psychology's attempt at one making something as medical as they can because that's what you do in medicine right you you do a test and then you find out okay this is what they have and this is the protocol um, one of the main reasons they do it is because that, that makes it as insurance and as, um, and, and I understand the intention of it. The intention of it is, so someone, a practitioner, they can teach anybody this, right? A practitioner can say, 
you just have to follow that. If they're diagnosed with this, then this is what, this is what we say will solve the problem. So I, I get why they come at it from that way, but it's not ontological truth, right? We're not getting at the actual um, reality of what's actually happening for them. We're just, we're just seeing the outside symptoms on the outside of it. And we're assuming, Hey, this is kind of like that. So let's, let's assume it'd be like the same thing as if you went to the doctors and you're like, Oh, I have a runny nose and a cough. And they're like, okay, then you have this. So take this medicine. And, but it's not getting at the actual, what do you really have that maybe actually might be causing it? Um, so it's the same thing as kind of that, um, it's funny, my brother's an emergency medicine doctor. So for him, like he just wants to stop the thing right away. Um, and for me, I'm like, well, if it's chronic or if it's a chronic problem, then you're just putting band-aids on it. Mm-hmm. Um, it almost yeah. makes me, me think of, you know, just as far as like with, you know, say you take something like obesity, you know, that someone could go into the doctor and they could have, you know, high blood pressure and high blood sugar and, you know, high cholesterol, all these million things. Mm-hmm. and it could just all be related if, if this you know, person has a lot of excess weight, you know, they could throw them all these different medications, but mm-hmm. yeah, sort of what's causing it, right? exactly what's causing it. So I think that, you know, it seems to me that that's, uh, that's a, a better approach in general when it comes to these kind of chronic, like long-term sort of psychological issues that we're talking about. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. I just don't think that I, again, I see the value of where, what the DSM is trying to do. And I see what, I see why they do it. Um, but I just don't think it's the, it's going to, it's going to solve all, solve the problems. How do I say this? It's not, it can cause more problems in some ways than one would expect. Like in other words, like if someone quote unquote misdiagnosed, I feel people often say that to me, oh, I was misdiagnosed. Like a diagnosis can be so helpful for people, but at the same time, it can also really put them in kind of this little box, right? Oh, only these types of things are known to help that. And because they could go, they could spend many years going in one direction that actually might not even be very, like the direction they should go in because that's not really what's happening for them. so I, it, that's what I'm saying. It, it's a difficult one for me because I do, I see the value of both, but at least from my point of view and particularly working with the brain, right? You're not, unless, I mean, they don't really have, I mean, they obviously have certain brain disorders, right? And you have those types of things. But what I would like to see in psychology is maybe using more like F, fMRI is going to be difficult, but using EEGs to help quote unquote, if you're going to use the DSM to help diagnose that type of stuff would be nice to do some other types of tests to help understand, um, you know, maybe what, um, I mean, I'm, what comes up for me is even like things like psychosis and stuff like that. I mean, most people that have that type of issue, you know, go through like 60, 80 medications until, you know, it, it's just, it's, it doesn't feel like psychology, psychology is trying really hard, but I just don't feel like we're, we're using all the tools that we have to really actually help people. It's more, okay, we've got a lot of people coming in. How do we organize them and how do we treat them in a way that's um, replicable and a way that if, like I said, you know, protects the practitioner so that um, it's, it's the same path for everyone who's diagnosed with that. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious, you know, as far as do you think, I mean, is it harmful in some ways if someone comes in 
I mean, cause I've, I've personally experienced just, you know, with my work, you know, if someone comes in and they, you know, say, oh yeah, you know, I'm, I'm depressed. I have bipolar two, you know, and, and they, it's not necessarily in my perspective that that's the problem is like the, the, whatever diagnosis they have, but it's like their view on it is it's as if someone told them they had like cancer or something that's like right. a part of them that they can't change yet there are these all these ways to that we know of to change the brain so and is, now is that something you run ways, into yes yes um and in some ways um there's two things there's two sides to that in some ways you're going back to what we talked about earlier with the definition of like self you know i always have this i have this and then if you're working on it i now it's like because they it's exactly that like oh do I still have this? Do I still have this? Right. It's like someone has given you that label and now you have this. Um, and the other side of it is it also helps define the symptoms. I mean, I guess that's what it's doing, right? We're defining symptoms. <laughs> like in some ways, that's all it's doing. Like if someone were to come in and say, I have this, if I have bipolar too, I would say, basically all it does to me is, is tells me okay, this is, this is about the symptoms that they're having. That's all it's really doing. Um, and then kind of shows me they're probably taking some medications because that's usually the route that most of those people go. Mm -hmm. um, that's about as far as I technically really think about it. And I know for a fact that um, my boss doesn't, he, we have a whole thing about that, you know, diagnoses are one thing, but that we don't, we don't diagnose, like the way that we look at things is outside that little model. We look at things more holistically. Um, and then my, my bosses are really, really into knowing people's early childhoods as well. You know, it's one thing with the, with the nature and then the nurture and the experiences um, is really, really important. Um, yeah. What about as far as, you know, with, with, head injuries and you know mental health as far as you know people say they've never struggled with anxiety or depression before and then they whatever they get in a snowboarding accident and then suddenly they have all these things pop up and now they're labeled you know with all these different diagnoses and different medications are pushed on them when really you know that's it's more of a uh, sort of a neurological issue right is that is that head injuries? Is that a, a big thing that you guys see? Yeah, we see a good amount of TBI. Um, not as not as many people come to us for that as I would think they would, which is interesting. I don't. I think what hap I think the reasoning why is because people hit their heads and then they don't they don't associate because they don't lose consciousness. They don't associate that with the symptoms. Um, especially if the symptoms don't come up right away. Um, cause that's really what they are, right? They're symptoms of something that happened, a, a hit to the head. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think, we don't, we just don't see as many as I would think, but yeah, I really think that's probably the issue. Cause we still have people too, will say like, oh, did you ever hit your head or, you know, have any, and like they won't, we always say that on the intake and I'm telling you like 50% of the time people won't write anything. And then my boss will again ask them, oh, okay, you, so you didn't hit your head at all. You didn't have any, well, okay, actually when I was six, I did kind of do this. And then when I was 10, I also had this. And it's just like, it's that, it's that same thing where people just don't, they just don't think it was a big deal because it didn't, they didn't um, lose consciousness or they didn't, you know, go into a coma. 
So they assume it wasn't, it wasn't a big deal, but yeah, you hit your head. It is a big deal. Like it, it, it's, I mean, the best way to say it is it really is traumatic for the brain. It just is, you know, there's no way around it. And some, some brains probably may, may not be as hurt as others or it depends on how intense the, the hit was. But um, at least from what I can tell is it, you know, those, for lack of a better phrase, low grade concussions, you know, can, can come up and can, um, at the core, that's why I come back to that ontological truth, like at the core be like actually really what's surfacing those. Um, but then again, someone could have had the tendency towards depression, you know, and then, and some things are just, yeah, they're going through a lot of stuff. You know, I got some, some people that are just going through a really hard time in their life, you know, and they're, they're going through stuff and it's like, I hear that, you know, and so we're here to help support them. Um, and, and, and normalizing that too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, you're right. I'm not, I'm surprised I don't see as many people, but I, I do think that's, that's mainly why. Or right. like I said, people actually did hit their head and that actually might've been what caused it, but they didn't put two and two together <laughs> until we right. asked. Them. Right. And then it's always the thing, at least, you know, in my work, you know, it's like, well, we didn't have a baseline scan before they hit, hit their head. Right. So how do we know that this is actually causing these right. sort of brain signatures? So well, two things, actually, when I've had some of my friends, I actually just have them, I'm like, I just want a before picture, just in case something happens to you, get, let me get a before EEG from you. Um, but I, there was, and I actually asked Tiff this question, because I was like, is this a normal thing with TBI? Um, my bot, we saw this the other day in someone else's TBI brain, and my boss said it can be, it's somewhat common, where you see that, like, you, almost ubiquitous SMR um, a frequency. Um, that's coming up. That's kind of almost this they, a compensatory SMR that's happening almost everywhere in the brain. And my boss said, I mean, that's what he said. He was like, oh, that, that can be a, a signature of TBI. The brain is trying to naturally kind of, kind of balance or heal itself. That's the only thing that I would, I mean, I'm so, I'm so green on this, on my QEG type of stuff. Like I'm way far to go, but it seems like that's my first, like, okay, maybe that, you know, that type of signature means that something happened to the head and it's, you know, the brain's just trying to balance it out. Right. And I think the, another thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, they could have, you know, the like structural changes, like what could be seen on an MRI, you know, they get to hit their head. And if it's, you know, kind of a mild TBI, it's not really going to show much. But then if you do a functional test of the brain with something like an EEG, you can actually see oftentimes massive, you know, problems. So, but people, I think oftentimes, you know, they just see, oh, the MRI, that the structure of my brain is fine, therefore the function must be as well when, when that really isn't always the case. You know, I want to, it's kind of interesting to me. It doesn't seem like it's, and I may be wrong on this. You can, you can let me know your feelings, but I feel like EEG just isn't as valued or isn't as used as F like fMRI is like somehow up here and EEG is like down here when to me they're both massively valuable and important um one is you know how the brain is actually functioning yeah you know talking to each other in real time and then one is just you know actual structural so I think that it shouldn't be like this it should be like this mm -hmm. um and I think that 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 adds to the um, myths and misinterpretations of uh, co uh, consciousness, 
of um, head injuries, concussions. Yeah. Because I mean, I remember at the at the uh, Neurofield conference, I talked, I can't remember his name right now, but he was almost like a concussion expert. And I was like, man, I feel like I wish I knew more about that type of stuff. Because I feel like that, that to me is a very, is, is going to get bigger in the future, particularly from NFL type stuff. I'm a big sports right. fan. And, you know, these, uh, it's silly to me to push it off and say, oh, these aren't happening. It's like, you just got to admit that hitting the head really is going to be impactful and let's do what we can to support these people. Like, it's amazing to me that they don't just get EEGs from every NFL player at the beginning of the season. Like, mm. that's insane to me. Like, why not? <laughs> it's so oh, I'm easy with you 100%. It's so easy to do. You know what? And I'll, I'll, take it a quickly. I'll take it a step further. I think, like, I don't understand why you don't just go into the doctor for a, you know, a checkup once a year. They do blood tests, whatever. Why don't they just do an EEG then, too? You do an EEG yeah, each year so of your good. life. Oh, now we see some kind of weird changes, and you're having difficulty concentrating. Okay, you know, let's address this. Like, there's got to be something in the medical community that doesn't like EEG. There's got to be yeah. something. There's got to be. I mean, there's got to be a reason why. Because I, even a good friend of mine at the Neurofield conference, I was staying with him. He's an emergency medicine doctor, and he he's like, oh, EEGs. He knows how to tell if someone's if someone's you know comatose or not. That's what he, he like basically. Basic, well, not comatose or not, he basically is able to tell if someone's brain dead or not. So whether they should pull the plug or not, that's like his, Interesting. as much as he knows, like when I told him what I was studying and I was like, okay, so that's what doctors kind of know, um, at least him, right? Um, but I, I just think that there's something there that'd be a really cool question to ask maybe a doctor. Um, right. Yeah, medically trained doctor, okay, PhD, right? So medically trained doctor, um, what what are their views on EEGs? <laughs> Absolutely. Because <laughs> you know? I think they think about it for sleep, you know, but that's it. Right. Or like seizures, like, a, you right. know, seizures like a, sleep. Right. there seems to be a big division as far as like the way, say like a neurologist might uh, utilize an EEG versus, you know, someone in our field, you know. Oh, or, yeah. Or, right. Like. Right. That's true. I, there must be some type of like, um, I won't, I won't say resistance, but either a feeling of not enough scientific support around QEGs. That's my guess is that there's just, it hasn't been around long enough. We haven't had the technology long enough. It's just not there. Um, I just think there's potential for it. I guess is what I'm saying. I think there's potential. I also think that honestly, it's not super expensive in comparison. And for some reason, people also value things that are very expensive, like fMRI machines mm -hmm. um, versus EEGs are so simple in that regard. Plus you've got a lot of artifact. I guess maybe that, that freaks people out. Um, I don't know why. That would be a great question though. Um, I mean, you're right, because they use them only for certain things. Why not for more? But it, it's got to be something about the lack of knowledge, lack of practitioners. Um, and again, I think there must be something that happened at some point in time that put a connotation to EEGs where it somehow is a little bit not as valued as others. That's my guess. Mm -hmm. I might be wrong. I'm probably wrong. But <laughs> no, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, 
the other thing that pops up is just, you know, the, the differences in training. It's like, if, if you're just told, okay, this is a technology to, you know, evaluate and detect seizures versus, you know, this is a technology where we can see all of these different patterns that can correlate with all of these different symptoms. Like it's just yeah. completely different. It know, would be really great. Cause I think psychology, I feel like psychology in general, I mean, you just, you kind of more just finished your undergrad, right? More recently. Yeah. Um, cause I know back when I did it, I'm sure it's slightly different now. Um, the field of psychology, um, just like what they actually teach us and stuff. Um, but I, I feel like it would be really valuable for the psychology world to really adopt EEGs more and for them to marry together. Cause I think that that that's really where EEGs can be more helpful. Cause it's more about the, you know, combining the psychological, the subjective and the objective. Um, which I don't think medicine particularly cares about the subjective very much. In fact, I think their goal is to take out the subjective as much as they can mm. and look at things as objective as possible. Um, when, you know, and they, they kind of, it's the day, you know, it's the, the separation between the head and the body. Um, mm. And I think that to not acknowledge that, that the psyche actually has an effect on the body and vice versa, um, I think is, <sighs> sad really <laughs> right yeah. i mean it seems like the maybe the medical community is is completely going that direction but it seems like just people at least you know people in in america like with you know as we were talking about earlier just like this huge you know growth of of you know yoga and meditation and you know neurofeedback now you're saying the last couple of years you know a lot of people have shown interest it seems like people are definitely gravitating more towards that subjective trying you know trying to get a better handle of their experience so right. and that maybe is sort of a segue into you know what I wanted to to ask you as far as you know what where do you see there being do you see this becoming a really big business in the future as far as you you know people using neurofeedback using QEEG brain mapping um I do you know in a business sense <laughs> yes I do. I do. Um, I think it's, I like, I just, I said, I say it all the time, but it's so true. The potential is massive. The potential is just so big because it's just extra data, you know? I mean, for, as a therapist to have the extra data to know what's going on, even as a human, when you, when you look at a brain map to know, Oh, because everyone's in their own head, right? And we don't know what, I don't know what your internal psychological experience is, is in comparison to mine. I can't, I can't see both and line them up. So it's cool to see your brain map. And I'm like, oh, not everyone runs this fast. Oh, not everyone is, is like this. And it's, again, these are logical things that we know, but it's so helpful to see like, oh, okay, so I'm slower in this area or it takes me longer to do these types of things. Or like for me, I'm, I run extremely fast. I run at like 15 or something. It's insane. And my boss runs at like eight. So it was really helpful to know that, okay, it's, you, you are, he processes very well, but it's, he's running at half my speed, you know, like almost half. So I'm like, okay, so that's, that's really helpful for me to know. Like, it's just, it's, it's nice to be able to, in some ways, know that what's happening internally, this whole psychological conscious experience, um, 
is one way. And what if I change the brain rhythms, I can actually alter that conscious experience, which I think is really powerful. Um, and vice versa. Just it, It's more just about that, that interaction between the mind and the brain. And I think in neuroscience, we're really getting to, as a field, I think the field of neuroscience is has been around long enough now that now we're starting to bring in those questions. I mean, I think years ago, Chalmers um, brought up a lot of these things about, okay, it's time we'll study consciousness. We're actually able to do the, the easy problem, you know, maybe not the hard problem, but the easy problem. Um, and I think that we're, there's just a lot of, and you know, with globalization, with the internet, like I just feel like we're in technology getting as good as it is. I mean, the fact that I can use a dry wireless headset for people to train 19, you know, on the 1020 system, I can do that without them having to get gel in their hair every time. So they can come in, train, leave, and they got nothing in their hair. You know, for us females, like that's, <laughs> that's, that's huge. You know, yeah. I mean, I got people that use that dry headset almost every hour of the day sometimes. I mean, like they love it. So I just think that as technology gets better, as there's more people that are knowledgeable in this field, I just think that there's going to be, I will say the neurostimulation versus the neurofeedback is a little different. I do have a lot of people that get really freaked out because they're like, are you putting anything into my brain? And I'm like, right. no, we're just reading stuff and you're doing everything. Uh, so I, I don't know how the neurostimulation is going to be taken in every, in every scenario. Um, but again, to me, it's just another tool. They're all just different tools. Um, and I think when people start and i think too even our political climate you know things like that like recognizing that like the psych our psychological well-being is really important and you know it you know usually when you have a psychological stressors you go to a therapist and you and or you take medications usually right or you do the other medications like alcohol and you know other other self-soothing type of things right um i think you know, not everyone, but I think a lot of people get to a place where they're like, okay, I don't love any of these options anymore. You know, and a lot of people come to us that say, I know I could take medicine and I know I could take medications, but I know that that's not getting at the root of the problem. And I really want to get at the root of the problem. And I, all I can say to them is, okay, it's going to take longer than the medication would take. Right. But we're actually quote unquote, really solving the issue rather than um, and it's the same thing as like putting a bandaid on something, or I often give the analogy of, you know, especially people that are, have a far to go. It's like, we're, we're really shifting foundations, right? Like if you have a house, like we have to shift the whole foundation of it. It's going to take a while. Um, so, you know, as long as people accept that and really commit to it, I just see such great success. Like, it's so awesome to see. It's so awesome. Um, and I just think it's going to take more and more people doing it, spreading the word. Um, and like I said, the technology piece is going to help because I can tell males started this, this field because they're like, oh, people don't mind putting paste in their hair and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, but of course, you know, people are fine with it. Um, but it's just, I think, like I said, I think just the more, the, the ease, the ease of setting up, um, the ease of people being, and I, I I just have dreams about, I went to New York City like a year ago and I was like, how cool would it be if people like on their lunch break could just come and like, you know, get a little, instead of going to a gym, it's the same thing, but for your brain, you know, so I can be really focused for the rest of the day, um, which is different than what we do here. But again, 
that's what I mean about there's so many potentials for the different, like, how do you want to advertise it? What do you, what kind of people do you want to come in? What do you want to give to them? You know, I think, yes, you have to build it and they will come. You have to build it and you have to explain to people, like, what's the value? Um, so I think being able to, and again, you know, it depends on what people come in with and what they're trying to do. Like a TBI person is going to be different than, you know, an anxiety depression person possibly, which is going to be different than an epileptic person, which is going to be different than a peak performance intention. Like all these things are different. Um, so right. yeah. I, it's funny. I've had the, the ex pretty much the exact same thought. I mean, it's, it almost seems like, you know, with, uh, you know, like, like physical therapy or something, you know, where people come in with all these different physical ailments that, that almost seems akin to kind of how we're using a lot of, you know, yeah. neurofeedback or neurostimulation, you know, to try to correct something, to try to fix something. But at the same time, like we all go to the gym, even if our arm's not hurting, we're just wanting to strengthen our muscles. Like, so I think that to me, that philosophy is going to carry over eventually, I don't know how long, you know, until we see that, but it's going to carry over to the brain and people are going to realize, oh, I can do this and, you know, study for, for longer and get a better grade on this test, or I can, you know, focus more and, and do a better, you know, report for work and end up advancing my career. I, I just feel like people are going to have more and more of those experiences and it's going to become as ubiquitous as going to the gym. And I think what's going to happen, it's what's going to have to happen for it to happen is you're going to have to have more people have that want and awareness, but you're also going to have to have the technology piece so it can lower the prices. I think you're going to, it's going to have to be both. You're going to have to find this, this is what this entrepreneurial mindset, right? I'm trying to be in like, what, how do I make this something that I even feel like I could come to and pay for, you know, like something that I feel like is because, you know, it, it's very expensive. <laughs> and people pay for it and they get better and I love that but there's a huge it again it depends on you know it's so I hate saying it's advertising in some ways but in some ways it's kind of like how there's so many potentials for it so then I mean the only way I can think about it is you're going to have different centers that are doing different things or people are going to come in and they're going to have different tracks like whether it's a therapeutic track or a um, peak performance track or something like there's going to have to be some type of way that you can fit the massive umbrella of neurofeedback and make it understandable of why somebody would come there, you know, and not just like I, like we just said, not just for an epileptic reason or a, um, TBI reason, but for, yeah, peak performance reasons, because yes, I might be able to study better and do all that. But if I'm paying 150 bucks, $200 a session, you know, like, is that worth it? How, when is that? How often is that worth it? You know, it's a lot of money um, right. for some people. I mean, money is in some ways relative, but it's, I, I think all, most of us can agree that $200 per, for an hour is a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, no, well said. Um, Awesome. Well, I've really enjoyed this, this conversation today. Any last thoughts before we wrap it up? Any last thoughts? Not really. Um, the only thing I could think of is I do, I hope that in the future, these centers and places incorporate embodiment work, like incorporate, that's what the, to me, the restorative yoga, but the breathing um, the direction of the tension work, 
um, and really just to letting people allow them to have their process um, rather than really trying to assume this is a linear positive path. Because I, I see more often the neurofeedback it's you you're getting better but it'll be two steps forward possibly one step back but you're still two steps forward or one step forward sorry <laughs> two steps forward one step back you're still one step forward so you know really like supporting people in the fact that it takes a little while for your brain to learn these new pathways and for you to gain these different skills and these different states of consciousness it takes a while um but it's it's as long as you're committed to it, like you're going to, you're, you're going to, it's going to be better. It'll be better. <laughs> right. Agreed. Yeah. Awesome. Well, if you guys enjoyed the show today, uh, go ahead and like, and subscribe on YouTube. Um, Roscoe's wetsuit. You can also follow us on Instagram, Roscoe's wetsuit podcast, and you can listen to the audio versions of the podcast on Spotify, Apple podcasts, and iHeartRadio. So, Go check us out. All right. Jordana, thanks so much again. Oh, thanks for having me, man. Appreciate Absolutely. It.